So now, as we transition into um, our scripture reading, um, if you could stand with me out of um, respect for the Word of God. This morning, our scripture is coming from 1 Corinthians 9, um, verses 19 through 23. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. And I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share that I may share with them in its blessings. This is God's word. It is true and is giving to you out of his love. You may be seated. Amen. Thanks, Tristan. So just to clarify, it's not here next week. Is that right? We're at Longview Park. I believe that is. Yes. Amen. So, um, and on the softball game real quick, we're going to play something called Chicago style softball. It's 16 inch where you play without gloves. So uh, the ball is, doesn't go as far that way when we won't launch it into the park and kill any kids is the goal for why that is. So if you want to join the softball game, you don't even need to bring a glove. Just come uh, having stretched out all those old guys, right? Getting limbered up, ready to play. Uh, we are going to do a mini church service there though. It's not just going to be a barbecue and playing softball. We're going to have a short little uh, kind of devotional thought on a theology of feasting. I think as an American church, we talk about fasting and denial quite a bit, but we don't know where to put this idea of feasting. And so there's this book called Every Moment Holy that I've really enjoyed. And the language he uses in there is that feasting can be an act of war when you view it correctly. So we're going to declare war on Satan by eating a bunch of hot dogs and hamburgers and stuff like that. We'll talk about all that next week, and then we'll do some worship songs together as well. Um, One of the things before we get started in the sermon here, uh, one of the things we've wanted to be true about our church is that we are not separated from our society and when significant things take place in our society we want to take time to take those before God in prayer and to commemorate what's happening and so the church has uh, given itself for the last 50 years or so praying and serving trying to, the American church that is, trying to see uh, Roe v. Wade overturned. And as you all know, the Supreme Court ruled this week in favor of that. And so that that era of our church or our nation's history is now something that's in the past. But as all the protests and the anxiety and anyone's social media will show you, uh, changing a policy does not change people's hearts. And so I think this is a reminder for us as a church in America to remember that ultimately only God is the one who can change hearts and bring people closer to him. And so in the midst of something hugely societally significant like this, we want to go before him in prayer and ask that he would uh, continue to draw people to himself, to soften hearts. He would uh, equip and strengthen the church to care for those who feel that this change in policy is going to adversely affect them. We want to make sure that we are loving babies and women equally because they're all made in the image of God. We have, our family has been a supporter of a ministry here in town called Life Network for a number of years and we would encourage you to, to look into that as well. Um, they're, they're not political in any way. They just do a great job of loving women and loving children. And so that's stuff like that. That's something we want to be known for as followers of Christ is our love and the, the love that of Jesus would flow through us. So I'm going to say a word of prayer uh, for this uh, national moment and then we'll get into studying God's word together. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a sovereign God, uh, the creator of the universe, that we can come before you knowing that you rule all things and that you are in control. And so when, when something significant like this happens, a change of policy in our country, we know that that uh, is, is part of your plan. Uh, we also know, Lord, that only your sovereign spirit can change hearts that are, that are um, feeling wounded and grieved by this process. So I ask that you would use our church, that you would use the American church to be agents of the gospel, that you would uh, proclaim your good news through us as we love people, especially the vulnerable in society, um, that as people um, um, step into this new chapter of our, our nation's history, that they would be have, um, we, we, you, would, you would give us opportunities to use this as an opportunity to share the gospel with those in need. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. All right, so we are studying a book of Acts still. This is our 28th week in this uh, book. And so if you're like me, every time we open up a new chapter, it's like this kind of feels a little bit similar to the week before. It's getting kind of repetitive in here. And the closest thing that I can think of as we describe what's happening here in Acts is the idea of a trade school. So, so if you're familiar with what a trade school is, a, a trade school is something where there is a one particular uh, job or vocation and the school exists with only one purpose, to make sure that when when someone has completed the program there, that they are equipped and ready for that trade. So whether you're becoming a mechanic or a hairstylist, like you go to one of these trade schools and the end goal is to produce mechanics and hairstylists. Okay? And what it feels like with the book of Acts is that we're in a trade school for missionaries. It feels like this is a missions trade school. And if we're going to go through the book of Acts in its entirety, the only goal, the only thing that Paul is trying to produce in us as we see this, uh, the stories of his missionary journeys, the thing that God is trying to work in us is this idea of producing missionaries. We keep saying week after week that whether or not you are called overseas to go to a foreign culture, and maybe that's what God's doing. We want to encourage you if that's where the Spirit's leading you. But even if that's not the case, God is giving you a ministry, a place to show the world the glory of who Jesus is. And so this morning, we're going to engage another a little lesson, another lecture from Paul on what this trade school of missions looks like. He's going to be our professor this morning, guiding us through how each of us can become better missionaries. But this idea of missionaries is a strange word in our culture. If you tell someone, hey, we go to church in order to become better missionaries, a lot of times they'll think, and do they give you a, a name tag and a shirt and a bicycle? When does that all come into this idea of becoming missionaries on your neighborhood? Uh, but the goal of what we're doing is not creepy or trying to manipulate people. A lot of times if you're on the outside of the church, hearing that Christians have a mission to try to convert you to Christianity, that sounds manipulative and creepy. Okay, and that's not at all what it means to be a missionary for Jesus. I think one story that comes to mind for me is when uh, a while ago, at one point we had four kids, four and under, which meant that Kelly was exhausted all the time and I was trying to help out any ways I could. But she was going through Walmart one morning and there was this nice older lady who saw her with four kids, four and under, and took a, a, a nice concern and care for her and was, was really kind and helping her with some things. And, and Kelly's like, oh, it's so nice to like, feel loved and cared for by some random stranger. And then the lady invited her over to her house and you're like, well, that's a little bit strange, but it's kind of her to try to offer a hand. And she's like, and when you come over, I'll have some other friends and we'll go over these essential oils that I'm selling and you can uh, be equipped to uh, uh, have all the health that these oils will bring you. And that's when like the, the, the coin drops, right? And you're like, oh, you're not being kind. You're being a salesman. You're trying to convince me to buy your product kind of thing. And I think a lot of times when we talk about being evangelists as Christians, we have that slimy salesman, creepy manipulator kind of vibe about us, if we're honest, right? The American church 
church, sometimes we can come across as we have an agenda, and that agenda is to convince them to believe the same things that we believe, okay, not in a loving way. But I think what we're going to see this morning, what, what the book of Acts has been showing us is if we truly understand what the gospel is, if we truly understand who Jesus is, if we've been changed by the good news of his love for us, it's impossible to separate our own need for that gospel from the message that we're bringing. Okay, the, the message that you bring as a missionary is never separate from the gospel that you need. Okay, the message that we bring is never separate from the gospel that we ourselves need. I think one of the most helpful quotes I've heard with this is the idea that uh, evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And so this morning, we're going we're gonna, to, again, engage this school of missions. We're going to hear what, how Paul can help us find out how to help other beggars find the bread of life that is Jesus and the hope that he brings to us all. So I've already prayed, but I'm going to pray again because we're in church and you should expect that kind of thing, right? So let's pray and then we'll study God's word. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning and that uh, we can open these words and uh, this, these pages and know that they're not just words on a page, but that it is a, a letter from you. It is, it is divine guidance from you. It is a picture of your love for us. And so as we study the words on this page, I pray that you would use them to open our hearts to see and experience your love for us in a special way. And we would all leave here changed because of what you're doing in our midst. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Right, so we are in Acts chapter 17. We're going to begin in verse 16. And if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles on the table, and the verses behind me will be on the screen. But what's happening here, the context of this is, so Paul is on what we would refer to as his second missionary journey. He's just gotten kicked out of Philippi. He's gotten kicked out of Thessalonica, and he's gotten kicked out of Berea. And so he went on a ship, and he ended up by himself in the city of Athens. Now is where we're going to find him. His, fran- his friends, uh, Timothy and Silas, are in Berea still. They're, he's waiting for them to join him in Athens. And if you're familiar with any world history, you know that Athens is one of the marvels of the ancient world. It was the the philosophical center of the ancient world. At this point in history, uh, some of Athens' greatness had declined, but they were still living off of their street cred for being the place where all the smart philosophers hung out and a place of ideas. And so uh, in that context, let's read in verse 16 as we see how Paul begins this missionary uh, uh, encounter in Athens. It says, now when Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he's waiting for Timothy and Silas. It says, while he's waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So we know from some ancient historians, one, uh, one historian said that in Athens there was more gods than people. Okay, there, there, it was easier to find a statue of a god on the sidewalk than it was an actual person in Athens. That's a, a, a sarcastic way of saying that this city had idols everywhere. It had these stone carvings of these gods that they would pay homage to, that they would worship, that they would make sacrifices to. And so as Paul's beginning this time with uh, walking around Athens, instead of just seeing the grandeur of the Pantheon and all of these ancient wonders of the world, the thing that Paul looks at and sees is the amount of idolatry taking place. And his response is a provoked spirit. It's a, it's a broken heart. He, is, he is, is grieved over the amount of idolatry taking place in this city. And I think as modern people, we like to think that idolatry is something that we left behind. We don't have any statues in our house that we bow down to and worship. But instead, idolatry is just anything that you look to for ultimate significance. Okay, our, every culture has its idols. Every culture has its things that we run to hoping to find significance. So whether it's our, our kids, we want to live vicariously through them and we hope that their success will 
equal our value or whether it's our career and we think if we just work really hard at this career, we'll finally find that our life means something or whether it's our bodies, we think if we're just uh, healthy enough or attractive enough, then we'll find significance in society. There's all these idols that we can run to. We have our own pantheons, right? It's not just the Greeks that had many idols that they would set up. But the thing that we see here, if Paul is our missionary professor, his first principle in this lecture for today and this idea of a school of missiology is that we need to see the brokenness around us and we need to feel deeply the effects of that brokenness. As he walked around Athens, his spirit was provoked when he saw all the idols uh, uh, taking place. And so this idea of, of seeing brokenness should always produce compassion in our hearts. If, if you're wondering why you're not living on mission as God calls us to, we need to evaluate our affections and say, is our heart broken for the things that breaks God's heart? Okay, we, we see this uh, demonstrated in Matthew 9 when it says that with Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Mission is always motivated by compassion. When we see the brokenness around us, it should motivate us to, to go and share the good news of Jesus. So the question for us as we're evaluating our own school of missions is do we actually see the brokenness around us? Are our are, are eyes open to the ways that our neighbors are hurting, the way our coworkers are hurting? Not only do we see the effects of brokenness, but do we feel the brokenness internally? Are we feeling correctly about it? A lot of times we can look at the decay of society or all these political issues and our response is anger. When you look at the response of Jesus, when Jesus saw the, the harassed and helpless people, his response was compassion. Okay, when you see the brokenness around you, we need to feel that sense of compassion towards those uh, around us. We, we won't ever be a beggar telling another beggar where to find bread unless our spirit is provoked over the brokenness that we see. But it's not just our spirit being provoked. We need to, to do something about it. So listen to what Paul does in verse 18. So some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except the telling or hearing of something new. And so we see that Paul's presence among these people in Athens, he was, he was in the marketplace where the people were at. He was talking about Jesus. His presence among them provoked insults. They called him a, a babbler, which was just an ancient way of saying he was an idiot. He provoked insults, but he also provoked further investigation. Right? That there was an invitation to him saying, come to the Areopagus and show us what these things mean. Okay, that, that word is just uh, the word for Ares, who's the Greek god of war, and the word for hill, which is why a lot of times we hear this as Mars Hill. Mars is the Roman version of the god Ares. And so what happens here is, is that Paul looks around Athens, he sees the idolatry and the brokenness, and he understands how their brokenness is uniquely manifest so he can step into that and speak of Jesus. Notice in verse 21 where it says, now the Athenians, the only thing they cared about was the telling and learning of something new. Okay, the, the chief idol in Athens is not the statues you see around. It's this idol of uh, intellectualism. It was these ideas that they were going after. So the Epicureans and the Stoics were just two of the ancient philosophies that existed that people would go to saying, maybe this philosophy will unlock the secret code to a meaningful life. 
Okay, and both of those philosophies are still around today. People are still going to these intellectual ideas, hoping that that will be the secret to unlocking a life of meaning and significance. Okay, but, but Paul understood that culture's unique expression of brokenness enough to step into it and speak to their need. He's reasoning with them. He's, he's engaging their intellectual idols toe-to-toe. He's going head-to-head with them and saying, the ideas that you are looking for are actually seen in Jesus. He uses their idols as an opportunity to speak of the good news of Jesus. And we also see that Paul, he lived among them in such a way that they invited him to share more about what he believed. Did you notice that? He was speaking in the marketplace, but then they invited him up to Mars Hill to say more about what it is he believes, okay? His, his presence among the pagans in Athens opened the door for an invitation to share who Jesus is and what he has done. And okay, so the same thing needs to be true of us. Do we understand the unique aspects of brokenness in our society? Do we see the idols that exist in Falcon and in Colorado Springs and all around us here in El Paso County? And do we live among our non-Christian neighbors in such a way that rather than being pushed aside, we're invited in because they have a degree of respect for us because of how we have presented Jesus to them? Okay, that, that's the challenge that Paul, the missionary, has for us this morning. And so, so from that, from this invitation to speak, it's an open door for probably one of the most significant sermons that Paul preaches in the book of Acts. Let's look at verse 22 and following. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Okay, so, so, so Paul's opening statement here, he's not saying that he's a universalist and that these, these Athenians were accidentally worshiping God without realizing it with this statue to an unknown God. What he's doing is saying is that as he's speaking with respect, he's saying, I noticed this thing about your society. And as I walked around, I realized there's an idol here, a statue that is made to an unknown God. And he's saying, if you have identified that even amidst all of your idolatry, amidst all the pagan gods that you worship, all this polytheistic approach to life that you have, even you have figured out that something is not working. You you feel like there's there's an itch that's not quite getting scratched, that you're, you're worried you missed something, so you made an extra idol called an unknown god just to make sure you covered all your bases and hope that by adding that extra idol on top of all the ones that you do have names for, maybe you'll finally find that the hole in your heart is being filled by this worship that you're doing. What Paul's doing, he's saying that he's, he's looking at their culture, he sees an opening, and he says, you as the uh, Athens culture that cares about all these things, you have realized yourselves that you haven't found the answer yet. You've realized that there's something missing in your approach to religiosity, and because of that, Paul uses that as an opportunity to take their longings and their desires and uses as an opportunity to point people to Jesus. And that's one of those principles we need to do as we engage our society. We need to speak with respect, not disdain. Notice Paul's not insulting them. He's, he's, he's respecting them in their approach and saying, here's something else you, sh- you should consider. So we speak with respect, and then we use their own desires to show them how it points to Jesus. Our own longings should be fulfilled in Jesus. C.S. Lewis has this awesome quote about the idea of longing and desires. And he says, "Um, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. 
If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it and to suggest the real thing. Okay, Paul is saying that you can go to all these different cultures and you can find a point of longing and emptiness and say that hole that you feel, that you feel in your life can only be filled by Jesus. You, you have desires that nothing on this earth will satisfy. Let me tell you how Jesus is the answer to that desire that you're feeling. And, and that's where this idea of contextualizing and looking at each culture uniquely is so important because not every society has the same questions. Not every, not every culture has the same longings and desires. We need to be students of our culture well enough that we can understand how the gospel is the answer to the questions that they're asking. And that's why when you read the New Testament, you can see, like, like in the Gospel of John, for example, when Jesus speaks to the religious leader Nicodemus, he takes a very different approach. He answers very different questions than the next chapter later when Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman at the well who's coming from a very different background. Right? Christian missionaries are always answering the questions of the culture in a way that t- takes the longings and the desires and points them towards Jesus as the true satisfaction for what people are looking for. So now that the door is open, Paul uses that unknown God as a way to get his foot in the door and say, let me tell you about Jesus. Let's look at what he does next in verse 24. It says, uh, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Okay, so, so Paul uses their desires as an open door. And then once he steps into that open door, I love this tactic, he runs as fast as he can to the glory of God. He doesn't waste time talking about, hey, let's debate some other philosophy. He says, now that I have a, a hearing, now that I, I have your ear and you're listening to me, let me tell you about how great God is. Okay, all of your gods, these idols that you've constructed, you have to bring sacrifices to them daily, hoping that you can keep them from getting angry at you and killing all your crops or making your wife infertile or any of these different things that these pagans would do. They have to daily go do those sacrifices and it's never enough. And against that low level understanding of deity, Paul steps in and says, let me tell you about God. Okay, the God who created everything needs nothing. He doesn't need anything from you. He created everything. He's the one who gives you life. And if he gives you life, that means that the God who created everything needs nothing, but he gives you life and existence himself. He, 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 once his foot is in the door, he sprints as fast as he can to the greatness of God. You're the creator of God who needs nothing and gives everything. So, so the question for us then is if we are going to be missionaries, right, if we're in Paul's school of missions, do we have an adequate understanding of the greatness of God? Have we been worshiping him to the extent that our hearts are overflowing with an understanding of his majesty and his glory and his beauty and all the different ways that we could describe how great and glorious God is? Okay, that's, that, that's that, the call to worship Kelly did as we got going this morning. The idea of if you, if you look and see the goodness of God, you can't help but overflow in singing and praise because he is the only one who is worthy of all of those things. And so when we gather as a, a time for corporate worship, we're not just trying to connect with one another relationally. We're trying to be reminded of, to, to lift our gaze, to see how beautiful Jesus is. And once we see that, we won't help but be missionaries to our society. That, that's the next step. Let's keep going. Verse 26. It says, and he made, this is talking about God still, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live all on the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, 
Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Okay, so like I said, the, the God who needs nothing gives everything. Here's the amazing thing about God as the creator. He loves us enough to desire a relationship. Okay, Paul's saying that God doesn't need anything from you, but what he wants is he wants you to be near him. He, he, he and his sovereignty even determined the place that you live and that, that your street address is actually a divine assignment from God so that you can find your way to him. And so if you are a follower of Christ, that means that your street address is a divine mission assignment so that your neighbors might be able to feel their way towards God. He's, Paul's saying here that, that the problem is not that God is far off. The problem is that we are blind and we miss God's presence among us unless God opens our eyes to see who he is. Okay, and the other thing I love about what Paul does here, again, if we're learning how to be better missionaries, what Paul does is he retells their stories in light of the gospel. Okay, so this probably didn't communicate on the screen, but if you look in a written Bible, you'll see that, that these two things are, are um, indented in the paragraph form in your Bible, that uh, in him we live and move and have our being, and for we are indeed his offspring. Paul in those places is quoting two of their pagan poets. Okay, and in both of those places, these pagan poets are talking about Zeus, Okay, so, so Paul is using this quote about Zeus to point people to Jesus. And it's not that he's endorsing everything that they believe about Zeus and these pantheons of gods. What Paul is doing is he's taking the longings of their stories, their cultural items that they look up to, and he's retelling that saying, this is actually pointing us to Jesus. Okay, he's retelling their stories uh, in light of, of, of the goodness of God. And that's one thing that as Christians we can believe. Because God is the creator of the universe, it means that every aspect of creation, even though it's fallen and broken by sin, is still going to contain some of the beauty of his fingerprints. There's, there's still going to be these little glimpses of grace that we can see in all aspects of creation. In Psalm 145, the psalmist says, the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. Okay, so, so that means that as Christians, rather than having to run from culture and make sure that our kids don't ever watch, like when I was a kid, it was Harry Potter. That was the thing, like you were a good Christian parent if you kept your kids from Harry Potter. Uh, that every, every, now it's like, are we going to protest Disney Plus? Are we gonna, there's all these different things that say you have to pull back from society and make sure that there's this wall of separation, this barrier between us and culture. And, and, and there, there's a point as parents, we need to protect our kids from ideas that they're not mature enough to understand yet. But at the same time, there's the missionary Paul who has stepped into this Athenian culture so much that he can tell their stories better than they can. He says this poem about Zeus is actually pointing us to Jesus and how great Jesus is. I had a professor in college who spent a, a half an hour going through uh, Forrest Gump and using Forrest Gump as an as a, as a expose of Jesus and the gospel. It was the most amazing thing I'd ever heard. Um, but when we do that, what we're not doing is saying, hey, you like, you like Forrest Gump? Well, maybe you'll also like Jesus, right? Or, or, or the way it's been done recently uh, is like with the, the Marvel movies. I saw a video of a church, that, a mega church that on Easter, they did a, a reproduction of Iron Man with Iron Man being Jesus who was crucified for all mankind, kind of something like that. Um, and he, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we do that. Because what that does is say that there's this great figure, Iron Man, and maybe Jesus is kind of like Iron Man. Okay, what Paul is doing is switching that completely and saying there's this great figure, Jesus. And even your stories that your culture longs to be true, stories like Iron Man, there's something in those stories that point us to the satisfaction that will only be found in Jesus Christ. 
Okay, we, we, we don't try to attach our stories to the cultural narrative. We retell the cultural narrative in a way that elevates Jesus as the supreme being that we're all longing for. So as we are, are beggars trying to lead other beggars to bread, we need to be able to retell uh, cultural stories in light of the gospel. Okay, this, Paul's sermon wraps up in verses 29 through 31. He says, but then, God, uh, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Okay, so we see that what Paul's doing now is he closes his sermon. He's been talking very favorably about their culture. He's been saying, hey, hey, here's some of what your poets have said. Here, I've noticed these these idols and the unknown God. He's trying to connect with them. But he he doesn't leave with them thinking, oh, we've been right all along. He, He leaves challenging them, saying, you have misinterpreted God entirely. God doesn't need to be made in gold and silver and stone images. In fact, you have it exactly backwards. You are the one made in the image of God. You are the offspring of God. You bear the divine fingerprints on you because he made you for relationship with him and you've got it entirely backwards by making idols in your own image instead. So he's challenging their culture, saying you've got it wrong. And then what he does, after he challenges their culture, he says, you need to repent you need to turn from this. You need to come to Jesus. Like, no culture wants to hear that they've gotten it wrong, right? This is always an abrasive thing to hear that you need to turn from your sin and turn towards Jesus. But Paul is, can't preach the gospel without challenging their idolatry. But then I love how he lands the plane here. He, he brings it to Jesus. But notice how he describes Jesus in verse 31. He says that, in righteous, that there will be a judge in righteousness who is a man who has been appointed and of this we have given assurance by God raising Jesus from the dead. Okay, that is a very different description of Jesus that Paul gives this pagan culture in Athens than he gives the Jewish people when he's evangelizing in a synagogue. It's the same Jesus he's preaching, but he's saying, I'm gonna describe Jesus to you in a way that you understand it. And and this is where so often as American evangelicals we fall short. We describe Jesus in a way that only Christians will ever understand. And then we wonder why they're rejecting our message. Okay, we need to be able to take who Jesus is and translate it into a language that says, that's the kind of savior that I think my heart's been longing for. I, I think I understand what you mean when you talk about Jesus, when you phrase it that way. That's the kind of hard work we need to do as missionaries in our culture is make sure we, we understand their heart's longings enough to show them that Jesus is the answer to the questions they've been asking. Yeah, I, I had another professor in seminary who used to say, our task is not to make the gospel more relevant. Our task is to make the relevance of the gospel more clear. And I think that's something we try to say all the time around here. We're not changing the message of the gospel so it'll be more palatable to our pagan society. We're changing how we communicate the gospel so that our society will understand that Jesus is the one that they've been longing for this whole time. So as we, get, as we wrap up now, we see that he's preached this sermon. What is the response going to be? Verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. 
Okay, so, so we see this is the end of Paul's ministry in Athens. The next week he's going to move on to Corinth, another city. But we see, again reminded, there are only three possible responses when the gospel is preached. Whenever someone truly hears Jesus as he is proclaimed in the scripture, your only option is to mock it, to laugh at it, to think it's ridiculous, dead people don't rise from the dead, or you can consider it more. You can have some further questions. You want to investigate it further, or you can respond with repentance and faith. And we see all three of those categories represented here in these last verses. And the people that respond with belief are people who are, who are, are themselves beggars who have realized that Jesus is the bread they've been longing for the whole time and they are new creations in Christ. So as we wrap up this morning, the thing that's tempting every time we come to a passage like this in Acts is to look at it as another, uh, another seven-step program from Paul of how to be a good missionary. Okay, so I hope, I hope you were taking really good notes because these seven steps are the magic key to unlocking a revival on your street and there will be no longer be any non-Christians in Falcon because we have these seven steps now. Okay, but, but what I want us to do instead of trying to look for that magic key is to look at the heart behind every city that Paul goes into and what it is he's doing. Okay, how do we keep from becoming these arrogant triumphalists who think we have all the answers and the world should come to us because we know everything? We, we keep from being arrogant like that by realizing that we are ourselves beggars looking for bread and we need the same gospel, that message that we're bringing to our neighbors. The other thing we need to see from this passage is that we cannot have any fruitful ministry unless it is motivated by love for our neighbors and a broken spirit that recognizes the destructiveness of sin and idolatry. We have to, like Paul, have the eyes to see the brokenness around us. There's a theologian named John Stott who commented on this passage uh, in Acts this way. He says, why is it that in spite of the great needs and opportunities of our day, the church slumbers peacefully on and that so many Christians are deaf and dumb, deaf to Christ's commission and tongue-tied in testimony. I think the major reason is this. We do not speak as Paul spoke because we do not feel as Paul felt. And if we do not speak like Paul because we, we do not feel like Paul, this is because we do not see like Paul. That was the order. He saw, he felt, he spoke. It all began with his eyes. When Paul walked around Athens, he did not just notice the idols. He observed, he looked, he considered. He looked and looked and thought and thought until the fires of holy indignation were kindled within him. For he saw men and women created by God in the image of God, giving to idols the homage which was due to him alone. Okay, we, we need to see, we need to feel, and then we need to speak. And all of those are going to be works of the Holy Spirit in us. We need to ask God to open our eyes to actually see the brokenness around us. And we need to ask God to change our hearts so instead of responding with anger, we respond with compassion and love and kindness. And then we need to ask God to give us the words to say, the, the, the right, contextual, specific ways to communicate the gospel to our neighbor's specific brokenness. Again, and, and doing all of this, we're not relying on our own strength. We're not saying, all right, go out there now and be a really good missionary. We're, what we're doing is falling back into the same gospel message that God used to draw each of us that is a follower of Christ to himself in the first place. Okay, God saw us in our brokenness. God felt compassion for us in our sin, so God acted by sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. Okay, we, we see this in the Old Testament in, in Exodus 3, where God says to Moses, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. 
Okay, then in Luke 19, Jesus has the same response. When he drew near and saw the city of Jerusalem, he wept over it. Okay, when God in his kindness and compassion sees our brokenness, his first response is compassion and kindness, and he acts by sending Jesus to die for our sins. As followers of Christ, we need to ask Jesus to open our eyes to see the brokenness, to change our hearts to feel compassion, and then to give us the words to speak boldly the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that uh, we can study this passage and see how, um, how in some ways Paul feels like the greatest missionary that ever lived and that there's such a big gap between him and us that we can't even learn anything. But Lord, I pray that you would remind us uh, through your spirit that it's not Paul's greatness, it's the gospel's greatness. Uh, it's not that Paul was anyone special, it's that, that uh, Jesus, you are the creator of the universe and it's in your power that we can proclaim this truth knowing that you are the one to change hearts. Lord, we, we don't have the power to change hearts in anything we say or do, so we are humbly dependent on you and we ask that you would, would change our hearts, you would open our eyes, that you would give us words to speak. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. All right, um, well, if this is your first morning uh, worshiping with us, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, the reason we sit around tables is so that after we study a passage together, we can then turn to our tables, our neighbors, and we can process some of the things that God has shown us uh, so that we can, uh, can, can grow in these areas uh, that we've been discussing. So if it's your first time, know that there's no pressure to share anything beyond what you're comfortable with. There, there's no need to, to, to speak if you don't want to. Uh, at the same time, there is an invitation that anything you say, you will be met with love and compassion at your table. I can guarantee you that. So, so here's some questions to get us started. Um, what brokenness do you see in your community? Think specifically about the areas that God has placed you, the spheres of influence, and what sometimes keeps you from seeing it. If you don't have eyes to see the brokenness around you, why is that? What's going on in your heart? Secondly, answering honestly, how do you, feel, how do you typically feel when you see brokenness, and how can we grow in compassion? And that's a really vulnerable question. Again, I promise you, you'll be met with compassion at your table as you answer. And then lastly, in what ways is it easy to speak the gospel to our particular culture, and in what ways is it difficult? Okay, so, so Paul found it easy when he talked about the statue of the unknown God. He found it difficult when he talked about the resurrection. So, so how is our culture similar to those things? Sometimes there's easy ways to connect, and other times there's hard ways. How, how is the gospel both comfort and challenge us as Americans? So we'll do that for about 10 minutes, and then we'll end with communion and worship. Thanks. <laughs> All right. Hey, so we can't get very far into the book of Acts without hearing the gospel and hearing about the gospel. Um, so I saw an article uh, by Jared Wilson. It said, uh, church is for sharing the gospel with believers. And um, I didn't read the article. And, uh, and it might not have been Jared Wilson, <laughs> but, uh, but we do. We need to hear it. We, we need to be reminded of the gospel all the time. Uh, and we need to be reminded of how God in his mercy and his grace and his beauty has saved us. We, uh, like Cobra talked about, understand the greatness of God. And Kelly talked about holy, holy, holy is our God. We need to be reminded day in and day out of how great he is and how badly we need him. And that's what communion is about. It's about remembering what Jesus has done for us. Uh, before we get to communion, there's a few other ways to respond. Uh, we can respond by giving. There's a box back there, and uh, you can also give on the website or on the church app. And um, we can respond by prayer. Um, you can pray at the tables. You can pray with each other. Uh, 
we'll be in the corner. Me and Jessica will be in the corner if you need prayer. And uh, respond by singing, which we'll do here in a second. And we respond with communion. We do communion here every week. We do open communion. That means anyone who is a believer in Christ uh, can take communion. So if you have not put your faith in Christ, uh, this is not for you. But it is a good time to put your faith in Christ because that's what we're here for is uh, to worship God and to rest in his goodness. And so... uh, that's what we do. So we got uh, communion tables. We have one in the back just over here, uh, one over there. Uh, just uh, take the elements. Uh, and uh, as the music goes. And uh, so it's just uh, Jesus said this. He took the wine, the cup, and he said, this is my blood shed for you. And he took the bread. He said, this is my body broken for you. So do this in remembrance of me. He says we do this. Let's remember how badly we need Jesus and how good he is and what he's done for us. So let me pray. Yeah. Oh, Lord, our oh Father, just thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that you are a holy God. And thank you that uh, you came down to save us. Help us to remember you and to honor you, Lord. In Jesus' name.